Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Ish Desai. Our guest today has blended a passion for medicine, personal and organizational development, and people with special needs into a meaningful career as a certified life and leadership coach, cultural toxicity consultant, and advocate. In addition to pursuing all of that through her firm, KHDR Consulting, Dr. Karen Rigamonti conducts research on caregiver burden and consults for Johns Hopkins Medicine International. Her husband, Dr. Daniele Rigamonti, was an early supporter of osmosis and remains a valuable advisor. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd like to, to start out by just learning a little bit more about you and what got you interested in medicine. I'm a physician, coach, and leadership trainer, helping healthcare workers in particular who feel overwhelmed, not heard, and isolated to find more balance and joy in their professional and personal lives. I developed my initial interest in medicine after reading several medicine-related books and holding several volunteer jobs in hospitals and offices as I was growing up. And after a short stint in teaching, where I taught human development and nutrition, I embarked on my medical career. And upon completion of medical school, I trained as both an internist and later as an anesthesiologist. During my training though, I realized I had a gift to listen and understand patients and people that were a mystery for some of my colleagues. One example of that was a young man that was on a med psych floor who was not communicating. And I kind of was assigned to him and I saw that I could actually connect to him. And I started talking with him. And at first it was just a monologue. He wasn't conversing at all. And I just decided I could reach this guy. There was something about him that I just knew he was listening. And I did my monologue. And suddenly after a couple of days, I realized he was responding. And the next thing I knew, he was talking to me so that a diagnosis and a treatment plan were able to be formulated. So that was really exciting. So, I mean, you obviously were able to connect in a way that maybe others couldn't. What was the thing that you did that you think helped form that bond? I actually looked at him and I saw him. I felt like I was looking inside him and I said to him, I know you don't want to talk to me and you don't have to, but I would really appreciate if you listen because no one wants to listen to me out there in the hallway. And I could really use a listener. So feel free not to respond. <laughs> With that, I watched and I suddenly saw his eyes tracking and all sorts of things. Wow. I mean, so it sounds like you were able to get vulnerable about something, you know, the fact that no one was listening to you in the hallway and in turn, you know, allowed him to, to feel like it was safe to be vulnerable as well. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that that... Feeling of safety in talking with people requires the person you're talking to to also be willing to be vulnerable and take risks. No, your early medical career was complicated by the arrival of your child who was born with significant challenges. Do you mind just sharing what impact it had on your path for both personally and professionally? My early career was really complicated by the arrival of my son, resulting in challenges and a major impact on me both personally and professionally. Actually, my life wasn't just complicated by his arrival. Luigi's arrival totally wrecked my medical career. 
it went to standstill. He was born severely premature because the obstetrician did not heed my words and failed to recognize my premature labor. The experience of not being heard remains vivid with me every time I look at my son. I ran an ICU in my home for several years and I became very involved with nonprofit organizations at the same time. And I began to advocate for those with special needs. And I still do that even today. During that time, I also received a master's in public health from Hopkins. And that allowed me to frame my work with more of a social perspective. And when my husband considered returning to Italy to develop a neuroscience center, I became involved with a medical technology company and obtained an MBA while running the U.S. division. Wow, that's no small feat. And it's interesting that you describe it in that way. When then did you first develop the idea of becoming a coach and consultant? How did that come together? Well, the business was eventually bought out by a larger European company, and I decided to redirect my career towards coaching. The key reason I went back to become certified as a coach and leadership trainer and focused my career more with advocacy and coaching was the realization that the stress and the harm that occur within healthcare stem from poor communication and little compassion. We're all trained to be compassionate, but we forget. We are not very good listeners, and we do not take enough time to pause and reflect with what the other party really means. And I have a gift for analyzing and resolving interpersonal challenges. And in my work with my clients, I'm committed to um, connecting with them, as I kind of described before, and helping people discover their untapped talent. And I have noticed in my work, both in the United States and abroad, that all humans just want to be valued, appreciated, respected, and treated with dignity, regardless of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, disability, religion, nationality, anything. So my strength is to inspire people to discover how to find the purpose in their work and at home and enhance the quality of their relationships. You know, when you bring people like you're describing together that are so different in, in all these different variables you just mentioned, it can sometimes be challenging for that group to work in a really coordinated way, you know, to create a really good culture can be hard. And a lot of organizations talk about having a successful culture. How do you define a successful culture? And how do you help organizations achieve that? Oh, interesting. So a successful culture is really one in which people feel emotionally safe and can speak up when they have something of concern without fear of retribution. It also allows for people at all levels within the system to feel confident. And when they have something to say, know that if they believe that it will help the organization, that they're free to state it and they will be listened to because their thoughts actually matter, even if another approach is taken at the end. So coaching helps strengthen the social infrastructure, enabling staff to speak up, and it facilitates the difficult process of learning from errors. And an organization with such a culture is most likely to be a highly reliable organization characterized by heightened quality outcomes. And that makes a big difference. One other project I know you spend a lot of time on is one in Saudi Arabia. You spent several years out there when your husband was running a large healthcare organization for Aramco. Do you mind just sharing the perspective you may have gained by working in Saudi Arabia on healthcare in general? Sure. 
Well, I became a coach and leadership trainer, and that turned out to be really a great idea when we got to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I was instrumental in helping the organization become person-centered. I led the training of 4,000 employees, including both the leadership and the frontline, as well as 1,000 contractors. I developed a model with nine elements that work with individuals, teams, and organizations to look closer and discover the pain points within the culture. And I use that. And when the organization's rules and policies didn't align with the values, we worked on doing that so that the culture would improve and people became more engaged. The quality of their work increased and they traded routine and boredom for invigorating challenge. I also provided guidance in becoming an inclusive organization for all people, caregivers and care providers with disability and special needs so that they feel welcomed as well and belong. And finally, I launched a vocational training center called We Can for young adults with disability that I had volunteers run. So the experience was very transformative both for them and for me. They became a more person-centered organization with higher patient satisfaction, increased staff engagement, more efficient and effective means of working. And at the same time, we improved the healthcare of the population and met the special needs and of those all under our care. And I became convinced that this is a path that could also improve healthcare in the United States. I believe it's possible to improve the quality of the care we provide and the quality of life of the healthcare workers and close the gap between caregivers and care recipients when we humanize medicine delivery. When you went out to Saudi Arabia, what was your understanding of the healthcare system that they had out there? And how did that shift and change as you spent time there? Were there any misconceptions you may have had? I don't think I even had any conceptions. What's more misconceptions? <laughs> I totally went cold turkey. Yeah. My husband basically came home one day and told me he had been called in to do this thing. I had an architect rearranging our house and making some changes for the better in this really old house. And I was busy doing all sorts of community work. And I just said, okay, we'll go look, but they're never going to allow me in. So I'll look because why not, but we're never going. And it turned out it didn't look so bad. And we said, okay. And basically three months later we were there and I didn't even know women weren't allowed to drive at the time. Oh, wow. I hadn't done any research. I just said, okay. And so when you went out there, I mean, obviously culturally it was different because you, you, you didn't have that conception. How long did it take for you to kind of acclimatize to the new setting for you personally? And then what sort of things did you notice that then immediately you thought, gosh, why don't we do it this way? Like, were there things that you can kind of take back to the U.S.? You're like, you know, that's a pretty clever thing that they do. We ought to consider that. Well, you know, I decided right off the bat that I could either complain and go home or <laughs> swallow it and stay. And I guess I like to have abuse or something. I don't know. You could do a whole psychological study, but I stayed. In any case, what I realized was that they do things differently. That doesn't make it bad. And it broadens my horizons if I just embrace it and try it for whatever time we're there. And so be it. There were things that they didn't do, but 
I knew that I was going home to visit my children enough or traveling that I could do them when I wanted to or in the privacy of my home. And it didn't really matter. And once you make that shift in your mindset and you're willing to just be with the other culture the way they are, instead of trying to change them and change yourself in order to be open and embrace it, you are so much better off because then life is pretty good. <laughs> the weather wasn't too bad. I enjoyed life. I loved seeing flowers in the winter. Summer wasn't quite as good, but. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I've always realized is that when you are trying to make a change, whatever that change is, maybe it's trying to eat better, go to the gym, whatever that change may be. Sometimes when you travel, it's easier to make that change because when you travel, your routine, your entire mindset is willing to embrace change. And, and then you can kind of focus that change and start eating better, start exercising more and do those things as part of that kind of global change you're kind of going through. When you went to Saudi Arabia, obviously you were going through a lot of change and, and them inviting you in, they were seeing a, a new person on the team. Do you feel like that helped to create opportunities for change in, in the healthcare culture that, that otherwise would have been a little harder if you had been from the culture and maybe didn't have a, a new face, a new perspective to bring with you? I'd have to be honest and say that I was not embraced when I got there and it was really challenging. And then I took a deep breath and I said, I'm going to figure out how to do what I want to do regardless, do it within their structure, but the way that I think is the best way, open to change and their ideas and influence. And I would have people say, this is how we've done it for years. You can't do it that way. And I said, you're not hearing what I'm asking you. I didn't ask you, will everyone make that change? I asked you if you will. If yeah. you will, that's all I'm interested in. Yeah. And what I realized was that everyone was clamoring for change. They just needed to have direction and guidance to get there. And that's true of everybody and everything. We all have a creative bug in us. We all want to try new things, but there's a fear factor that holds us back. We won't look good. We won't be good enough. It won't work. And we stop. Whenever you're trying to make change or, or change someone's mind, I mean, there are whole books, there are whole aisles of books in bookstores about this topic, you know, going from no to yes, essentially. What are some tips and tricks you've come along with where you were able to Go into Saudi Arabia, you said initially you were not embraced, and then you were able to be effective as a change maker. What are some ways that you did that? And what are some examples of how you were able to pull that off? Well, one of the things I do, and I tell other people, I suggest they try, is you can't just go in and say, this is my way and do it. You have to figure out which parts of your way they can hear and they'll be receptive to, get some buy-in from them, find out who will do it and who's a follower. It's not just me as a leader, but whoever the first followers are that make a big difference because they take a lot of courage. Once you get a certain number of buy-ins, everyone else wants to be on the in crowd, kind of like teenagers that all want to wear the same thing. So they're all accepted. Yeah, And when I've focused on reading the toxic culture responsible for doing so much harm in healthcare and working with the vulnerable populations. And everyone there thought they were vulnerable. It's really funny. But I actually got the buy-in of leadership to have everyone was required 
to take a course on communication and on compassion. So basically six hours, three done in two, three hour shifts. And they were all required to do it and they had to get it done within the year. Wow. And they all got it done. It was basically always like at 98% because there's always a new person being hired that until they take the course, they're on the 2% that haven't done it yet. But it was amazing because once it started happening, they noticed the difference to each other that they were, instead of being in silos, there were more collaboration across teams and across departments. And they also discovered that the patients were happier. They were discovering somebody was listening to them. They didn't feel as much antagonism or something. People were willing to hear what they had to say. Now, that's not true of all patients. There were some that were bad apples. There were some staff that were bad apples, of course. But there was a trend and it was actually happening and everyone felt it. One other thing that you know you mentioned that strikes me is that there is this deep emphasis on collaboration nowadays, especially with COVID-19. We haven't talked about that directly, but you know, a lot of groups are trying to figure out how to make people not feel as siloed as individualized and how do you create a sense of community and foster that sense of community when when physically we're all socially distanced, physically distanced as well. What are your lessons from Saudi Arabia around how to create a more connected space that then might translate into kind of what to do now that we're here with COVID? Well, I think healthcare um, can be more effective and customer friendly by utilizing telemedicine in the appropriate circumstances. And the stress on efficiency alone, however, can dehumanize the experience with medical care, even when people are kind. So we have to really pay attention to that. And growing administrative responsibilities and increased pressure to see more patients is not helping the cause because the physicians and other frontline staff are feeling a burnout from the physical and the emotional needs that they're responsible for delivering. And this has been true for the last 20 years that just was heightened with COVID. And through coaching, I help remind them that they chose to go into medicine because they like being of service and helping people. And if you can get that back, they find the joy in medicine again, instead of this burnout feeling because it's not the hours, it's the drudgery and the asking to do all this administrative work that they didn't buy in for and they didn't sign up for. We need to challenge our practices and there will be always a crisis amidst us. If it's not COVID, it'll be something else. And healthcare needs to keep pace and keep changing along with it. And I think that COVID has taught us a lot about that. Do you think that from your research, are there certain techniques that hospitals should employ or are there strategies that individuals should employ to help deal with that burnout? Yeah, I do. Actually, there's a couple of things. I think that we can work on the mindfulness and the human person and coaching them and helping them come up with strategies that work. And that's very individually based. What works for me won't necessarily work for you. I help people figure out what is best for them and will help them feel calmer and less stressed and less overwhelmed. And all these little tricks do give them more time and a little balance in life. 
But I think that the other thing is that the institutions that we serve in, the systems, the organizations, the governing bodies all have to recognize that compassion is here to stay. We have to not just focus on bottom lines and matrix and data, but figure out how are we assessing people and rewarding them for being compassionate? Are the performance reviews including that in them so that everything is aligned and we're hiring people that speak and walk the same talk and that we really value that. And the other thing that came out, of course, during COVID, there was an influx of patients that was so great and we didn't have enough support for all of the people that were coming in and healthcare practitioners were forced to make decisions about who should get support and other critical resources. And there was a deep sense of transgression and feelings of shame and grief and remorse from having to violate core moral beliefs and a situation that the psychologists call moral injury. And these symptoms of struggle stem from religious faith or even loss of faith, because many of the moral values we have come from religious teachings. But I think that the inner conflict from this psychological and religious symptom of moral injury create a significant effect on family and social and occupational functioning. And so the organization as a whole has to address these issues and be prepared better for them. In Saudi, there was a drill done about bad infections way before COVID became apparent, like three or four months before we heard about it. And we discovered we were prepared. And anything that we thought we were a little bit low in, we ordered at that time. So we were ahead of the curveball. But I think we have to plan for those things and know that healthcare practitioners, especially the ones in the high stakes situations that are working in emergency rooms and ICUs and faced with life and death decisions anyway, and exhausted from the pressures that the system is placing on them, need to be recognized and given spaces even within the system, they let them take a break when they need it so that they can rebound. And now we're being faced even with that great resignation that I'm sure you've been talking about. And burnout and moral injury certainly contribute to this situation, but it's also the pervasive feeling that people just don't feel valued. They feel like if they were to die tomorrow, life would go on, work would go on, and nobody would miss them. And that's a really bad feeling, even when you like your job. People are clamoring for more connection and control of their lives, both at home and at work. And it's not ever going to be fully balanced, but we can integrate things and make people feel more welcomed, like they belong and more rewarded. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a lot of points there. And I think many of them, you know, just hit so close to home that the need for something greater than yourself that you're part of is crucial. And if you just feel like you're pushing paper around, then that's not being met. I know that you have so much different and varied experience. And so I'm, I'm curious where you're going to go with this. But, you know, we're a teaching company. We love to fill knowledge gaps. Is there any topic you'd like to educate us on and on what you think our audience should should know about? It can be any, any topic of your choosing. Well, I think that the most important thing that we should all realize is that we often treat symptoms and diseases 
but they're whole people behind those symptoms and diseases. Mm -hmm. And they live in a community and we need to spend more time preventing diseases, seeing them as a whole person that comes with family and other aspirations and dreams and talk to them as people and find out what they really need and want. We live in toxic environments where the well-being of our staff and our customers alike are at an all-time low. Mm -hmm. We blame and shame and criticize everyone for the system. And we never take ownership of the problems and strains that we ourselves contribute to those problems. It's important to understand organizations that focus just on financial performance sacrifice transparency, trust, employee engagement, retention, customer loyalty, increased compliance by patients. And the result is you don't have outcomes that are as good and as powerful. Errors keep happening, just like the error that happened with my son years back. And despite all the training and implementation of checklists, we keep erring due to the lack of good communication. This occurs only if there's a team and people are feeling psychological safety and that it's sufficient and that the institution actually prioritizes and aligns with these professed values. And unfortunately, arrogance and lack of compassion still negatively affect compliance and outcomes. And it's up to us to model the best behavior. That makes sense. And in terms of modeling, I guess that, that gets right into my final question. So we have a lot of students and early career health professionals in our audience, you know, as a role model yourself, what's your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment, uh, how they should approach their career in healthcare? Well, the number one thing is to remember that we're treating human beings, not diseases. This requires compassion and healthier communication. Compassion is key to any conversation including treatment plans. Patients, families, and colleagues are not really difficult. They are just feeling fearful and stressed. It's our job to provide comfort to their soul and not just treat their symptoms. We need greater exposure and training to better deal with vulnerable people because of disability, age, social and economic status, what have you. And we need to choose to work in organizations they truly value and prioritize compassion because otherwise you're going to be frustrated forever. Every team would benefit from hearing the voice of the patient and family caregiver at the table. The patient knows that his own body or her body and knows what feels best. And similarly knows that if we give them the information in lay terms, they'll be able to pick the option that's best for him or her and not what we think is best for them. And the family caregiver is the most powerful person on the team, but they are the most overworked and underpaid member. And that's both in dollars and appreciation. And we need to support them better because they're vital to good results. We need to be aware of how cultural biases, our own, interfere with our interactions, developing a new and more tolerant culture. And by that, I mean thoughts, attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs is paramount to improving transparency and authenticity, producing trust, and increasing compliance to medical plans and overall safety. Culture is more important than ever. And 
we forget that. And it's critical in today's most complex world where what worked in the past is not guaranteed to work in the present and the future, as we've just discovered through this pandemic. And we must choose how we want to view the challenges that come our way. We can simply react to them, or we can choose to be curious, courageous, and create better dialogues and situations. It's up to us to find the goodness and the blessings rather than continue to point the fingers of shame, blame, criticism, sending people into defense mode and propagating the non-healthy culture. By avoiding reactive conversations, we all feel more valued and appreciated and produce healthier outcomes because medicine is a science and an art. Both are really important, but it's the art that really determines the highest likelihood for success. Well, that's a fantastic place to end. I think thinking about it as an art is a very important reminder. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today, Dr. Igmonti. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.